This week on the Science of Politics, Can America Become a Multi-Party System? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Americans dislike the two major parties, and those parties are fighting more and compromising less. But does that open the way for the rise of third parties and the huge institutional changes necessary to bring that about? Today, I talked to Lee Drutman of New America about his new Oxford book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. He argues that a new multi-party system is the only way out of our cycle of polarization and democratic decay. He sees opportunities, favoring the adoption of ranked choice voting and more multi-member House districts. But I also talked to Jack Santucci of Drexel University about his recent representation article, Main Ranked Choice Voting as a Case of Electoral System Change, and his related work on the progressive era history of electoral reform. He finds that the two parties have to face real third-party threats before they're willing to reform away their advantages. Drutman makes a strong case for trying to change a two-party system that is thoroughly broken. This is a book that is part theory, part history, and part argument. And I mean, basically, I'm trying to answer three big questions in the book. The first question is, how worried should we be uh, about the state of American democracy? Um, the answer to that is, I think, quite worried because we are in this hyper-partisan doom loop, and I don't really see how it gets better before it gets worse. Uh, why now? I think the, the main argument in the book is that this is the first time that we've had a genuine two-party system in the U.S. with two truly distinct national parties with no overlap, and this has really only been going on for a decade. Uh, now, I know we a lot of people say, well, haven't we always had a two-party system? And yes, that's true. But within the two parties, we had multiple overlapping parties. And I think what we've lost is the idea that there is any uh, – what we've lost is any overlap between the two parties. And now we have a genuine two-party system. And it's a disaster. It doesn't work with our political institutions. And it's driving us all crazy. Uh, and then to the question, what do we do about it? Uh, I think the answer is that we change the way we vote, allow for more parties to become a multi-party democracy, and break the, the zero-sum hyperpartisanship that is a fundamental threat to our democracy in this moment. The two-party system isn't living up to its promise. The long-standing arguments for a, a two-party system uh, was that it produces moderation. Uh, this is uh, largely derived from the... the uh, Downsian theory of convergence on the median voter, uh, that parties have to run to the center to uh, to, to win elections. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that theory was ever particularly right, but it seemed to, to fit the American experience uh, for a period of time. And uh, I think it may have been right descriptively, but for the wrong reason. Uh, we could get into that in a little bit more detail if we want to. Uh, but the, the basic benefit was that parties should converge on the center because they had to be broad Big Ten parties. And the reality is that parties have been moving further and further apart uh, for, for quite a while. Now, a lot of people know Downs for, for the, the median convergence theory, although he says, well, there are a bunch of assumptions that apply to this theory. Uh, and then on the very next page of his 1957 book, he, he says, well, it's also quite possible that we would have a bimodal distribution, in which case two-party democracy would become unstable and collapse. By the evidence, two parties have not converged. They've pulled further apart, uh, somewhat asymmetrically, but they have not converged on the center. Uh, the second argument made for a two-party system 
uh, was that it, it creates more responsibility and accountability because you can see parties make promises to the electorate and then either they deliver or they don't deliver. Now, I think this uh, supposed benefit of a two-party system maybe works much better in a Westminster-style system in which the party has complete power uh, and then you can judge it on on whether or not it, it, it made its promises, it delivered economic growth. But in the U.S., with a separated power system, there, there are so many veto points, it's, it's really hard for any party to, to get full accountability. And so it's really hard to actually judge a party performance in government and hold it accountable. So uh, if we don't have median convergence and we don't have accountability, uh, you know, the, the supposed benefits of the two-party system, uh, then, then what do we want a two-party system for? Drutman finds lots of advantages of multi-party systems by comparing their results internationally. In our system of winner-take-all plurality elections, uh, the reality is that very few votes matter. Uh, there are very few swing states, very few swing districts, and most voters don't get to really vote in a competitive election very often. And you know, it's deeply unfair, it also overprivileges and overrepresents communities that happen to be pivotable, pivotal in those states and districts. Uh, now, in a pro- proportional system, every vote matters equally because every vote counts. There are no swing districts or swing states, uh, every vote contributes. And what that means is that parties are going to be reaching out to, to voters everywhere and engaging voters. So you will see higher voter turnout. Also, uh, the fact that people's votes actually matter means that more people are going to vote. And the fact that there are more parties uh, means people are more likely to find a party that they feel will represent them and, and excite them. And you know that, that, that civic engagement, that voter participation is really good for healthy democracy. It adds the legitimacy of the system. Uh, you know, that's on the voting side. On the, on the governing side is that it actually forces, uh, tends to force broad coalition building and, and broad compromise, uh, which, you know, one is just good for democratic legitimacy. And as a, I think as a, as a theory of, of governance builds more uh, stable, longstanding, fairer policies. Uh, also builds more legitimate policies that, and you know, everybody, more people feel included. Uh, there, there's less of a less, less of a feeling like if your side loses, you're you're completely shut out of power. And you know, policy tends to converge more on the median uh, in a multi-party system because you tend to have pivotal pivotal groups in the center of the political spectrum that wind up uh, playing an important role that the part that the party coalitions, although although not necessarily the party themselves, but the party coalitions in government have a strong pressure to, con- to, to move to the center. He says we do have a pendulum swinging between liberal and conservative policy, but each party still hopes for a permanent majority that never comes. There's a long been a thermostatic quality to American politics in which whichever uh, party is in office loses favorability. I mean, people people like activist government until the activist government actually starts taking some actions. And, you know, so you know, we're, we're in a moment in which support for liberal policy has never been higher. Uh, if Democrats start making liberal policy, it will almost certainly go down in response. Uh, but the challenge in that is, one, every time we get into this moment in which liberal policy uh, support gets high. Democrats think, oh, well, you know, 
we're going to get this permanent majority. And, you know, so, you know, we got, we got to win the next election and Republicans fear, oh, Democrats are going to take over. So we've got to push even harder. So there, there's this, even in this period in which there is a lot of stasis because the natural thermostatic quality of American democracy prevents one party from being in power, uh, unified power for very long. Uh, both parties think that, that if they just do something more, they can get that permanent majority, uh, even if it's elusive. And that creates all kinds of dangerous incentives. Uh, and, you know, the reality is, is that most of this, this period, uh, over the last, uh, you know, 20 years ha- has been gridlock. Uh, there's been a lot of divided government, uh, and it's not productive, cooperative divided, go- divided government like it was in the 70s and the 80s, but it's divided government that is gridlock and stasis. A multi-party U.S. system would still have left-right competition, but the coalitions would form after the elections with some benefits. There will always be uh, some element of left and right in in our politics, uh, as there is in, in almost all Western democracies. Uh, and you know, that there is some broad structure and, you know, and certainly in most multi-party democracies in Western Europe, there is a tends to be a left block and tends to be a right block. Uh, but the advantage of a multi-party system, as I see it, is that those blocks don't have to stay fixed and that you can build different coalitions at different times. They they don't have to be the parties themselves don't have to be so zero sum because coalition building is essential to governing. And I mean, the, the, in some sense, the, the, the difference between multi-party democracy and two-party democracy is pretty straightforward. It's that, you know, do, do coalitions have to happen after the election or do coalitions happen before the election? And a two-party system, coalitions happen before the election and a multi-party system, coalitions happen after the, the, the election. And I think despite that, that being a somewhat simple difference, it is actually, a, I think, a quite profound difference because in the two-party system, you build, you're trying to build majority coalitions before the election. And what the experience of that uh, for voters is that, you know, our side needs to get all the power and then we're going to enact this big agenda. And that inevitably leads to overpromising and disappointment and a a strong uh, zero sum negative campaigning aspect in which you're trying to cast the other side, the other party as just extreme awful, negative, bad. Now, in a multi-party system, when voters don't necessarily know the exact coalition they're going to get, what they do is they support the party that they think is going to be their best uh, representative and is closest to their values. And then they accept that, well, I'm not going to get everything I want because my party is just a 20% party and they're going to build a coalition in government and it's going to be bargain and compromise. and uh, you know, that's that's OK. That's that's how politics works. And there's just a lot less zero sum negative campaigning because they're, you know, the, the phrase lesser of two evils it, it is common in American politics. But there's no lesser of three evils or lesser of four evils. I mean, we see what in the Democratic primary, we see what happens when candidates start getting really nasty with each other in a multi person race is that they, they it, it hurts both of them. So there's a strong incentive. To, to, to be more positive, to be more issue focused, to be more policy focused in a, a multi-party campaigning system. And that that shapes the voter experience and the voter expectation. And I think it translates into more productive policy making.
He outlines a national plan to reform the U.S., but thinks action will start locally. My big package of reforms, what I call the Save American Democracy Act, is for the House, multi-member districts with uh, ranked choice voting, uh, also increasing the size of the House to 700 members, uh, single winner ranked choice voting for the Senate, and getting rid of congressional primaries. I, I would also like to move to a national popular vote for president with ranked choice voting, but that would require a constitutional amendment, and uh, so I don't put that in the initial package. Uh, now, that's a bold package of reforms, and you know, in contrast to what's in H.R. 1, which is a lot of, of, of reforms that deal with campaign finance problems, make it easier to vote. I'm highly supportive of those reforms, but uh, unfortunately, campaign finance voting rights uh, have, have become partisan issues in our politics. And I think one advantage of this set of reforms that I propose, even though it's bolder, it, it, it is, in a sense, bipartisan in that it is an equal opportunity destroyer of both political parties. It doesn't help one side or the other. What it offers is a peace treaty in which we say, look, you know, we're, we're at a stalemate. Neither side is, is going to win in this, this this political moment. And, you know, a lot of us who work in Congress feel like we would like to solve some big problems. And we hate this, this hyper-partisan warfare in which we don't get to do any problem solving. We're just scoring points. Uh, and this offers us a way out. I, I know that that would be a big change, but I do know that lots of other countries have, have made changes of their electoral rules. And, you know, I, I I recognize this probably won't start in Washington, although I would point to the Fair Representation Act sponsored by Don Beyer, which creates multi-member districts with ranked choice voting for the House. I think what we'll see more likely is what we've seen in the history of reform in the United States, which is that it starts at the state level and it spreads to the states and then eventually it, it becomes the, the national standard. And you know, we've already seen a bit of this activity. A lot of cities have moved to ranked choice voting and been late. Uh, mostly single winner, though East Point, Michigan, uh, just uh, has moved to to multi-winner ranked choice voting, and Maine has uh, now has ranked choice voting. I think it will be on the ballot in Massachusetts this year, possibly Alaska. So the 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 movement is building. I think there's more and more sense that the the political system as it operates doesn't work, uh, and you know people people want more parties. Two thirds of Americans say. They'd like to have more than two parties. More Americans than ever are deciding to register as independents as a sign of rejection of both political parties, even if they vote for one party or the other. But as uh, B.O.K. once said, if you give people only rascals to, to vote for, they'll, they'll vote for the rascals. But Santucci looks at one piece of recent reform in Maine. Maine implemented something known as ranked choice voting, single seat ranked choice voting, and that is the voter ranks candidates in order of preference. And if no candidate has a majority of first choice votes, uh, the last place candidate is eliminated and ballots for that candidate flow to the next rank picks on each. And this process repeats until somebody has 50% plus one of ballots that are still live and active. And the intent of the reform was to, it was intended to be used for gubernatorial elections there because Maine had a long history, about 40 or 50 years of uh, governors winning with less than a majority, less than 50% of the vote. So it was really 
a ripe place for to you know it was like wow this just makes sense why the heck aren't we doing instant runoff voting here so i was like you know i was like wow that's interesting what, you know why did it take these reformers so long to finally win this ranked choice or instant runoff voting system and the short answer was that uh the short answer is that like nobody really knew what they would do with their second choice if that makes sense so i want to vote for the green party in maine but I'm not clear whether I'm going to go for the Republican or the Democrat after that. And in 2014, you see the re-election of Governor Paul LePage, who can be described as a right-wing populist in another one of these spoiled gubernatorial elections. And everyone's just like, that's enough. Everyone just sort of agrees. We can't have more of this kind of person winning. So the Reform Coalition comes together. And they pass it in a ballot initiative. And the state legislature tries to block it. You had, I think, 11 Democrats in the state Senate team up with the Republican Party to basically kill to kill the thing. So it ends up coming up for a second vote in 2018, and it wins again. But due to um, some language in the state constitution, the state constitution says plurality. Uh, it cannot be used for gubernatorial elections. So they're using it for federal elections up there. He says it came about after a new coalition rather than creating it. It basically asked, uh, why did it take so long for these reformers in Maine who had been pushing what then was known as instant runoff voting for about 15 years? And the answer to that question was that, you know, the state really needed to polarize. Public opinion really needed to polarize. So the kind of takeaway on single winner reform, what they call single winner reform, was that like IRV fits perfectly where you've got a majority that can't agree on a single candidate, but they all kind of agree on what they don't want. A broader point that comes out of that main study for this electoral reform stuff in general is that instant runoff voting when it passed there kind of represented the ascendance of a new coalition. And that happened in a context of polarization. So I, you know, I'm not totally sold that instant runoff voting is going to reduce polarization, right? So much as kind of come in when there's a new coalition that's ready to take command. Drutman draws on America's long history of reforming our institutions to argue that it's possible again. American history is... The history of, of occasional bursts of, of democracy reform. Uh, you know, you can think of it in, in big cycles. Uh, you know, there was the, the Revolutionary War, major democracy reform, uh, expansion of the franchise in the 1830s, Jacksonian democracy, the Progressive Era, which was a major burst of democracy reform. We went from having appointed senators to directly elected senators, senators uh, pri- from no primaries to primaries. Uh, uh, reform and initiative at the state level, and then the, the you know, and, and suffrage for women. Uh, and uh, all of those seemed impossible at one point. And the civil rights era of the 1960s, uh, which also felt like nothing was going to happen for a while, then something happened. And I note that, that those things, those uh, eras of reform are about 60 years apart. And if you do the math from the 1960s, that takes us to the, the decade that we're, we are entering now. 2020s. Uh, and all of these periods of reform have a lot in common. They're all periods in which politics did feel stuck, but there was sort of a moral energy 
building people uh, you know, were, were getting engaged, demanding change. There were social movements building, big social movements. And there was also a change in the media structure that uh, new changes to media technology uh, created new outlets and new voices. Uh, and and periods in which the status quo felt like it was uh, it was broken. I, I you know I, I note that over the last decade the whole neoliberal consensus around economics has collapsed. The, there's a more and more challenge to the existing hierarchies in society. And you know frankly, uh, you know Trump's presidency has I think blown up the idea that America has the, the best system of democracy in the world. And has created a real opening. I mean, the the, the expansion of of big ideas in the last few years has, has really been something remarkable. At a time when it felt like you know we all the all the tenets of of modern you know liberal capitalism and democracy had had more or less been agreed on. Uh, so so I think we we will see a, a big decade of reform. Uh, and and it's exciting. It's an exciting time uh, to be in the political reform space. Santucci has been studying that long history, especially the agitation for a multi-party system, but he finds that reforms did not really produce it. The core of this rank choice voting movement has, is about and has been about since 1893 proportional representation and multi-party democracy. Uh, proportional representation, the rank choice form of it, had been in place in 20 for cities around the country from 1915 to about 1961. And then all of them, all of of that stops. The only one of those cities that's still around is Cambridge. So I just, the research started with trying to get a handle on all of that. And um, then Maine starts doing this, this single winner rank choice voting thing. And you know, what's the relationship between this single winner cause and that movement and the PR adoption. So I, I decided to write a paper that cheekily tried to educate people that like, this is not proportional representation. This is something else in it. It is a, actually, it's a winner take all rule. You know, we don't tend to talk about instant runoff or single winner rank choice in those terms, but let's be honest, that's what it is. There's going to be one winner and they get all of the seats because there's only one. So what, is, what does all that mean? It's, what Maine is, is like 1915 in a sense, uh, because wow, you know, this reform impulse that has been around for about 20 years, we're starting to see some real serious wins and it's not PR. It's single winner rank choice voting, but here we are again. You know, we're getting serious about reform. He agrees with Drutman that the current anger at polarization and corruption mirror that in the 19th century. In 1893, when, if, if I may, Fair Vote 1.0 is founded at the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago, you have sky high levels of polarization in Congress. We have just seen, we're in the period of Reed's rules here and getting control of of floor time. So there's a lot of sort of anger about this new polarization thing that's that's all over the place. Uh, They call it party responsibility at that point. And then in cities as well, you've got, everyone's talking about corruption, quote unquote, and machines. So there's polarization, uh, anger with party discipline, but there's also a strong third party uh, element in American politics at this point. This is when we have the populist party trying to run on fusion tickets in various states. This is where the original impulse comes from to start changing the electoral system in the United States. And broadly speaking, you know, people sort into two camps. 
there's sort of let's 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 have proportional representation and multi-party government and then there's sort of people who think you know that single winner reform is 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 fine or they're not even thinking about proportional representation and that is largely because of what happens in 1912 when uh, you have a four-way presidential election really three of the candidates are serious you have uh, teddy roosevelt william howard taft and woodrow wilson and uh roosevelt takes half of the republican party over to a new party and essentially delivers the presidential election to wilson so people are just up in arms over this and uh that's what generates the first that's what really sort of shoots you know that's a shot in the arm for single winner reform and it's a shot in the arm for attention to reform in general although many cities did adopt reforms they were eventually killed off by the 1960s through labor communist ties reform coalition failures and minority voting alternatives my best guess right now is that the labor organized labor i need more systematic measures of this but the more research i do particularly on proportional representation the more i find that organized labor was supportive of proportional representation largely because it was not in either of the party coalitions in a meaningful way and then um you know after 1955 with the merger of the afl cio what few remaining cases there are of proportional representation just start dropping very quickly. So if you go through like the, 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 the Worcester City Council uh, minutes, their roll call record, you find somebody reading the following into the record. You know, the Massachusetts AFL-CIO, and this is in 1959, has recommended to all cities no more proportional representation. So that's, that's one part of the story. I think that, you know, the unions no longer need proportional representation to have leverage in government. And in fact, they experienced some pretty negative policy outcomes in one place I've studied closely, in particular Cincinnati. There are glimmers that it might not have been good for them in Massachusetts either. So the unions is one part of the story. I think the other part of the story is that we we solve our big minority representation problem in the United States with the Voting Rights Act. And there's a sort of settlement on using um, single member districts to do that. So that just, that sort of, that's the end of the movement. Um, it drops this ranked voting stuff completely. You know, people have been saying that it's confusing since 1893. Well, you know, in, in, in the 1950s, they finally say, yeah, I guess it's confusing. Let's promote other things like limited voting or cumulative voting. Well, then, and that's interesting. That's why if you go to, you know, a lot of cities around the country, you'll see, okay, we have a seven, seven at-large seats. No party can have more than five of them, right? And that's a result of the limited voting system that's this sort of late, late movement advocacy. Um, but it's done. I mean, you know, the, there are a couple of key defeats. New York City in particular really hurts the movement because there's uh, an activist, Walter Millard, Walter J. Millard. He's once described in the Cincinnati Inquirer as a self-described Fabian socialist. Uh, and Millard, after new, proportional representation is repealed in New York City, Millard leaves the movement to go work directly in housing policy. Millard is important because Millard seems to have known how to stitch together these reform coalitions on the ground in cities. 
And what happened, what I'm finding through the roll call record in New York City is there's a story that communists got elected and oh boy, that's why this got repealed. The communists actually had been in city council for six years before the Republican Party decided it was done with them. Um, what I'm finding in the roll call record is that the Republican Party itself had trouble maintaining unity on post-war redevelopment and housing issues. So it's interesting that Millard, this guy who can really uh, build a reform coalition in some place, leaves the movement after the housing fight in New York City. Um, and then, of course, we get the stories that some listeners will be familiar with. Oh, well, you know, African-Americans and communists got elected. And that's why all of this stuff was repealed. I think it comes to be understood as a sort of a black reform or a communist reform. And that is the deliberate work of people who didn't like it anyway. Um, but that's not the primary reason it's repealed in New York City or it really, I don't think any of these other places. The modern reform movement started in California, but again was focused on single winner reforms. California always ends up being like the initial testing ground for this stuff. It, it's, it's, it's interesting, back in 1913, the PR movement held its first referendum on PR in Los Angeles, and it fails for reasons I can get into. And they learn from that. And that's how we end up with this single transferable vote thing. In You would know, you might even know better than I would, but uh, in, in California in the mid-90s, they were trying to do proportional representation. Again, the single transferable vote in uh, San Francisco. And that proves unsuccessful. So the movement decides instead, hey, we're going to do single winner reform. We're going to do instant runoff voting. And San Francisco has a very strong Green Party. Um, you've had the traumatic 2000 presidential election. So, so reform, reform is on everybody's minds. And the Democratic Party organization is kind of falling apart in San Francisco. Uh, so there's an, an opening there to pass instant runoff voting, which is how we get this sort of initial iconic case of instant runoff or single winner rank choice voting in the United States. Uh, and then, you know, it spreads outward into other cities in the Bay Area. And then uh, I think we get, uh, I think Minneapolis is the next major case or around 2006 or something like that, mid, mid 2000s. We've got some limited use for military and overseas voters, mainly in the deep South. There are a lot of runoff elections in the, in the, in the South. And if you are stationed overseas somewhere, we're worried that you don't have enough time in the event of a runoff to get that second ballot in. So IRV seems to make sense there. Maine is, is the sort of, Maine is big, right? Because Maine is all people power. And that's the story we're getting out of Maine. And then in 2019, we come to New York City and uh, a Charter Review Commission, not a popular initiative, mind you, a Charter Review Commission agrees that instant runoff voting seems like a good idea in New York City. So that's a brief history of instant runoff voting. I, I should mention as well that East Point, Michigan has gone with the single transferable vote, proportional representation, in order to resolve uh, a voting rights minority, uh, a minority vote dilution case. So that's worth keeping an eye on, but we're not yet at the point where there's a you know, we're still mainly talking about single winner reform. We haven't gotten to that point where we're talking about proportional representation on a very wide scale. The main system continues that tradition, but required support from political elites and was mostly a Democratic partisan action. Who are, who are the elites? They're sort of people in the Democratic Party 
who are unhappy with what's going on in the gubernatorial races and they want to see some solution to that problem. And I don't measure the correspondence directly between, you know, elite endorsements for the RCV measure and uh, what voters opinions are, but you know, both, right. You see both of them move in the same direction. And I think that's important because regular people are not well-versed in the gory details of electoral system design. You know, for them, it's all hashtag rank choice voting. So when, when one of a question like, do we adopt our CV in Maine comes up, it's reasonable to assume that most people are going to turn to trusted political elites to figure out what to do about that. Which is why when you study the referendum returns, you find that 85% of people who voted Democratic in the 2016 presidential election voted for ranked choice voting and a very small share of Republicans supported it. In particular, uh, you know, the, the, the wing of the party that was on its way out, that was sort of losing control of the party to that more the populist wing. And it's interesting, I, you know, you made me think, you reminded me of this, at one point, that wing, that embattled moderate wing of the party endorsed ranked choice voting, interestingly enough. And you can no longer find that video on the internet. Drummond agrees that early experiments have not built multi-party systems, but they have shown benefits. Uh, the, the experiments we've seen so far have been with single winner ranked choice voting. So unless you're, till, until we move to multi-winner districts with ranked choice voting, we're not going to get a, enough of a proportional system to really stimulate the development of, of a multi-party system. Uh, so that's probably why we haven't seen more parties emerge. Also, in some cities, the, the elections are nonpartisan. So I think what we've learned from ranked choice voting in in the cities where it's been been enacted is that it's uh, led to uh, to a, a sort of kindler, gentler form of political campaigning and coalition building. It's been less negative campaigning. Uh, voters feel better about being able to rank their choices, uh, and they, and they do rank their choices, and they do understand it. Uh, and and you've seen more women run, uh, more minorities run, particularly uh, minority female candidates. Uh, you know, I think it's it's largely been a positive experience, and that's probably why more and more cities are deciding that they want to get in on ranked choice voting. He sees hope in people's hunger for broader reform. I, I think w more and more people uh, in this country uh, feel like there's something broken fundamentally broken our, in our political system. And they are hungry for big structural reforms that will unbreak the system and create new political coalitions. They want more parties. And I, I think as people begin to understand that the reason that our political system is so broken uh, is because we have a, a, an electoral and party system that is generating this this two-party hyper-partisanship that is fundamentally at odds with our political institutions uh, and is driving us all crazy, they will get excited about electoral reform. I mean, I really feel like electoral reform is on the verge of a big breakthrough in this country. And he thinks we can learn from other successful multi-party systems. The U.S. is, is a unique country in terms of its size, in terms of its political culture, uh, in terms of its history. So, you know, there are obviously cautions in doing comparative politics, but you know, I, I think we can certainly learn something. And you know, I think on the whole, the, the most comparable countries to the U.S. in terms of, of uh, economic development, uh, in terms of political culture, are uh, Western European countries. 
Uh, and those are all examples of, uh, I would say, successful multi-party democracies. And I think what we see from those countries is that you have coalition building and compromise as, as an essential part of government. You have broadly stable, moderate, incremental policymaking over time. You have an engaged citizenry with, which votes at very high rates. And you have, a, 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 you know, I think those those are the countries that uh, that are always at the top of the list of every list of economic, whether it's, you know, uh, political freedom, democratic stability. So, you know, I think those those are, you know, those are good examples and we should look to them as we think about how we want to solve uh, our current crisis of hyperpartisanship. Santucci agrees we can learn from comparative politics, but he thinks our own history is most relevant. Best hope we have, given the durability of two-party politics, to understand how these things operate is to study the way they operated here. But we should do that with an eye to how proportional representation or even what's known as preference voting or the alternative vote in Australia has operated there. Americans have a lot to learn from Ireland and Australia because there these systems seem to work, quote unquote, whereas here the news is almost always negative. There's this persistent concern about voter confusion, which goes back to 1893. And my hunch is that this is because in the case of ranked voting, to the extent that ranked voting is a multi-party reform, and that's your term, multi-party reform, and it's a good one, uh, it operates in a multi-party system in these other places, not here. And that may have something to do with why you see ballot exhaustion, for example, skipped rankings, for example, which you do not see in these other countries, right? Because these multi-party systems, when you have a multi-party system, the parties have incentives to to get voters to get it right. Drummond acknowledges it's harder to make it work in a presidential system, but he isn't deterred. If I could wave a magic wand, I'd certainly uh, move us to a parliamentary system. Uh, but I, I think that would require a major constitutional rewriting. Now, I would note that the U.S. presidential system in the in the, the menagerie of presidential systems around the world has uh, one of the weakest presidential powers uh, in, in it in our constitution. Uh, the president doesn't have all that much power except for what Congress delegates to the president. Uh, and the reason the presidential pre- reason president the reason presidential power has grown so much uh, is uh, because Congress has given up on a lot of its responsibilities, and that's because a hyperpartisan Congress is really a broken Congress. Uh, you know, you have two conditions in Congress: either you have unified government in which Congress you know, basically says, "Well, we don't want to do anything to make the president look bad, so we're not really going to do any oversight, and we're going to, you know, just do more or less what the president wants us to do." Uh, and then you have divided government in which the opposition party says, well, we just want to make the president look bad. So everything that the president proposes is, uh, dead on arrival. And both of those conditions kind of shut down debate and deliberation in Congress. Now, I think if we had a multi-party Congress, neither of those conditions would hold because the president would need to build coalition support for his or her 
policy. Uh, but I think also what you'd see is that Congress would be more productive. And remember, Congress is the first branch of government and uh, uh, should be. Congress should be the, you know, the, the source of, of legislation and policy innovation. And I think it would be again. And we would look less to the presidency to decide on, on all policy matters. But Santucci says it's hard to create a multi-party system out of a two-party one. The absence of a pre-existing multi-party system shapes the reforms themselves. In other words, if we lived in a multi-party system and someone had incentives to change the voting system, we would be talking about list-based forms of proportional representation. Uh, but you know what we're trying to do here is induce a multi-party system, and uh, that means that Democrats and Republicans need to bargain with each other over what those voting rules are going to look like. And, um, you know, people, people in this country, rather than, you know, discontent with the two-party system in America does not really get expressed as third-party voting. It gets expressed as, I hate parties. So you've got to build electoral systems that accommodate those preferences which is why we talk about ranking choices, not voting, you know, not circling the Green Party logo on a list PR ballot. And national adoption does not seem to happen without a third party threat. I don't see the national adoption, and this is not even from my research. This is just from reading the literature on why some countries have PR and others don't, right? And what you find is that a country's legislature or legislative majority adopts PR because there's some problem that it needs to solve. Maybe it thinks it's gonna get shellacked at the next election, or maybe it sees some other coalition forming on the horizon and it wants to split that coalition. PR is a great way to do that. You let the Liberal Party and the Socialist Party have their separate existences. You know, So how do you end up with a PR adoption in the American Congress? Like either Congress says, gee, you know, what a great idea, we should have a multi-party democracy. I don't see that happening. Or you know, there's some sort of, there's got to be some self-interested reason for it, which usually in, implicates some pre-existing multi-party system. So that's the story on Congress. I, I, you know, with respect to cities and states, yeah, sure, you can see adoptions. Does that generate multi-party politics in those places? Historically, no. The only place with a robust multi-party system uh, that had proportional representation in the old days was New York City. And that's because it had a pre-existing multi-party system, which left its imprint on the reforms that were adopted there. So, for example, you saw party labels on ballots in New York City, um, which you did not see in other places. And gee, isn't that interesting? One other point on the question of whether there can be some transition from instant runoff voting to proportional representation, probably not for on a theoretical level, because someone needs to have the incentives to make that transition. And empirically, there's only one city in the United States that ever did so. There were 39 cities experimenting with single winner reforms during the progressive era, and only one of them, Cleveland, makes the transition. Santucci agrees it would be a good reform, but he doesn't see as much chance for success. I'm open to the possibility of Congress reforming itself but I, you know, I just don't see much precedent for it in, in the comparative literature on electoral system change unless there's some sort of, you know, like high levels of new party entry, which generates coalitional 
which generates basically party discipline problems in Congress, and therefore PR becomes seen as a way to deal with that. Um, but broadly, like I've, re I've read Lee's book, and I think he makes a, com a pretty compelling case for why multi-party democracy might, might be better than a strict two-party system. If our projects differ in any way, I think that the, the core of the difference is this. I, I would say that the pre-existing multi-party system is important for the types of reforms that you get. In other words, if you're going to have reform, if we must have reform, it's probably better that it proceed in the context of a pre-existing multi-party system. This year, Drutman says that new crises and work on the ground could mean that the reform movement grows. The more the, the flaws of our current electoral system are on display, the more likely uh, reform is is to get a boost. I don't wish for a crisis, but I do think crisis is an incredible spur for action. And I think a lot of people saw Donald Trump's presidency as a crisis, and that has created a tremendous amount of energy around reform already. I think we'll see more, more and more cities uh, adopting forms of ranked choice voting. I think we'll see a ballot initiative in Massachusetts and possibly in Alaska. And I, I think we'll see more. I, I hope with this book that, that I'm starting a conversation about about what what we want democracy reform and renewal to look like in the decade ahead uh and that that conversation continues as we get into the 2020 election santucci sees a possible transition with reformers moving toward an elite supported system to control populism we are in the middle of that transition right now i think 2019 2020 is the transition that this is our version of 1913-1914. The types of activists uh, who are involved with it change. The sort of bottom-up, you know, re reform via citizen initiative kind of we see less of that and more of incumbent governments adopting it. The nature of, you know, the nature of elite support for it kind of changes. And uh, to be blunt, um, I think we we might be seeing it go from a more populist sort of reform to a reform that is used to manage populism. But he warns that electoral reform sometimes inadvertently hurt voting rights, and so electoral reformers need to work with other reformers. If we're going to go forward with this stuff, right, if, if, we, if we must have ranked voting systems, we need to do that. The, the first question we need to ask whenever we go forward with one of these things is, Will it diminish, will it make things worse, worse for the voting rights world? <laughs> and I say that for two reasons. The first reason is that um, if we don't ask that question, these reforms simply will not go forward and it quite could, could possibly bring another end to the movement. Um, but the other reason to say that ref the reform world needs to take voting rights seriously is that there's tremendous potential for unintended consequences. Because Coming back to your question about what's the role, relative role of elites versus public understanding of electoral reform, the last PR movement unwittingly became a vehicle for plurality at large elections, which if you know the urban politics literature, you know is not great for racial minorities. It, there's some evidence that it's good for women, but not racial minorities. How did the last PR movement unwittingly become a vehicle for what some might describe as a voter suppression device? The answer is that in order to pass the single transferable vote, it had to bake it into a larger reform package. 
So when this thing comes up in front of voters, think hashtag rank choice voting in our time or machine rule and corruption in, in the in the old days, you know, voters are really thinking about corruption, hashtag rank choice voting. So elites who are importing the reform package into their city can quietly remove the proportional representation provisions and leave everything else intact, which is an at-large plurality nonpartisan election. So, you know, for those two reasons, both um, for the potential for unintended consequences and in order to push the reforms forward, you've got to take voting rights super seriously. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Lee Drutman and Jack Santucci for joining me. Please check out Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop and Main Ranked Choice Voting as a Case of Electoral System Change, and then listen in next time. 